Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hello, fellow Partially Examined Life fans. I'm Seth Benzel, an economics PhD candidate at Boston University, and I'm here to introduce two readings on the intersection of economics and ethics. The first reading is Frederick Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society, and the second is Amartya Sen's On Ethics and Economics. Frederick Hayek was born in Austria in 1899. To the public, he is best remembered for his 1944 screed against socialism, The Road to Serfdom. Hayek was a contemporary of Keynes, and they had public intellectual feuds in which Keynes would argue for more and Hayek for less government intervention. Despite this, the two were personally friendly, and Keynes found lodging for Hayek when he was driven out of London by the Blitz. Hayek won a Nobel Prize in 1974. The Use of Knowledge in Society, written in 1945, argues that decentralized planning, via the coordination mechanism of the price system, will bring about better social outcomes than centralized planning. Imagine 1945. Communism is triumphant. Keynesian government intervention has pulled the world out of the Great Depression. While fighting World War II, the Allied governments take over direct control of huge portions of the economy. Who needed Adam Smith's invisible hand when the visible one seemed on such a good roll? Hayek begins by putting himself in the shoes of a central economic planner. The planner's job is to employ the resources of society, all the labor of all its diverse individuals, all of its natural resources and machines, in such a way as to make everyone as well off as possible. This is a daunting challenge. There are thousands upon thousands of factories, hospitals, psychology offices, what have you, that take as inputs electricity, labor, and a thousand other things. All the world's populace have varying degrees of productivity in different tasks and find some more pleasant, helpful, and fulfilling, and other tasks less so to various extents. In order for the planner to know, for example, which people should report to each job and for how long, she at least needs to know what the elasticity of output to labor is of every factory, the relative preference each worker has for working at one task versus another versus leisure, and the intensity of demand for the output of every service or industry by every customer and every other service or industry. Hayek claims that getting all of this incredibly particular and ever-changing information to a central planner is an impossible task. The alternative to central planning is decentralized planning. The advantage of decentralized planning is that locals understand their local conditions. My friend knows how much more she prefers a gin martini to a vodka martini. The local psychologist and her staff have the best idea of anyone how costly it would be in terms of additional work hours to go without a computerized filing system. Now, the problem of decentralized planning is that my friend doesn't know about the world's relative scarcity of vodka and gin, and the local service provider knows little about all the different uses that computers and labor have in the world. However, the world has stumbled on to a solution for the problem of decentralized planning. Prices. Under the price system, everyone buys, sells, and combines their resources in such a way as to maximize their interest, taking the prices they face as given. 
Meanwhile, prices adjust so that given everyone's individual optimizations, supply is equal to demand. In equilibrium, there's no waste for under or oversupply, and everyone does the best they can given those prices. These prices in turn represent the relative scarcity of goods throughout the economy. Stated technically, the price system leads individuals to internalize the central planner's problem of setting marginal rates of substitution equal. Let me use Hayek's own words. Assume that somewhere in the world a new opportunity for the use of some raw material, say tin, has arisen, or that one of the sources of supply of tin has been eliminated. It does not matter for our purpose, and it is very significant that it does not matter, which of these two causes has made tin more scarce. All that the users of tin need to know is that some of the tin they used to consume is now more profitably employed somewhere else, and that, in consequence, they must economize tin. There is no need for the great majority of them to know where the more urgent need has arisen, or in favor of what other needs they ought to husband the supply. The effect will rapidly spread throughout the whole economic system and influence not only all of the uses of tin, but also those of its substitutes, and on the substitutes of those substitutes, the supply of all things made of tin and their substitutes, and so on, and all this without the great majority of those instrumental in bringing about these substitutions knowing anything at all about the original cause of these changes. The whole acts as one market, not because any of its members survey the whole field, but because their limited individual fields of vision sufficiently overlap so that, through many intermediaries, the relevant information is communicated to all. Hayek's argument that the market will bring about an efficient outcome was later mathematically formalized as the fundamental theorem of welfare economics. It states that given some very demanding assumptions, the price system will bring about an efficient outcome. By efficient, I mean Pareto efficient. A situation is Pareto efficient if there is no way to make any person better off without making someone else worse off. This state of affairs is said to be efficient because if it is possible to make one person better off without harming anyone else, it would be wasteful not to. Marcus Sen, in, on ethics and economics, based on a series of lectures he delivered to a joint group of economists and philosophers in 1986, critiques some of the assumptions driving this and other results of welfare economics. Sen was born in 1933 in British-colonized Bangladesh, and the Bengal famine of 1943 left a lasting impact on him. Sen studied at Trinity College, Cambridge, and won a Nobel Prize in 1998 for his work in social choice theory. Sen helped to develop the UN's Human Development Index, and continues to champion economic development focused on enlarging capacities. Sen argues that ethics and economics have gotten too disconnected to the detriment of both. Economics had its start in two traditions, an Aristotelian stew in which concepts which we would today call ethics, politics, and economics were all mixed up, and one in which economics was a separate instrumental tool. After the first generation of modern economists, such as Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, for whom morality was central, the engineering approach has been emphasized. Sen examines the assumptions economics makes about human behavior. A core assumption of the vast majority of economics is that people behave rationally. Sen breaks rationality down into two subconcepts: consistency, or what I'd like to call rationalizability, and self-interest maximization. He later breaks self-interest maximization into subconcepts as well. A rationality is a system of rules by which an agent decides in an action given their preferences, beliefs, and options. It might also include rules restricting the types of preferences allowed and how beliefs are formed. Economic models assume many subtly different forms of rationality for different contexts. But even the standard bare-bones version entails that an agent have complete and transitive preferences. Complete preferences means being able to make a choice between any two options that might be presented. 
Transitive preferences mean that if an agent prefers A to B and B to C, then he prefers A to C. While a person with intransitive preferences is conceivable, you might find it very difficult to go shopping, because he'd be at the shopping mall, he'd put one cereal in, he'd see a cereal he preferred and put that in, he'd see the first cereal again and say, oh, he prefers that, he'd never be able to get out of the cereal aisle. A neat thing about rational preferences is that they can be represented as a mathematical utility function. An individual doesn't need to be conscious of their utility function. To be consistently rational, they just need to act as though they were consciously maximizing it. Further, for a person to be consistent, their preferences don't necessarily have to have any connection to their good or pleasure or anything. If a suicide bomber or drug addict acts sensibly in pursuit of their goals, they might be acting consistently, but you'd hesitate to say that they're acting in their self-interest. The other definition of rationality economists work with is self-interest maximization. Why do economists want to assume the utility function people maximize represents their well-being? First, factually, self-interest seems to be at least a powerful motivation. More fundamentally, if we want to be liberals and not automatically assume that the good for me is the good for everyone else, then we need to assume some form of access to what individuals' goods are if we want to make plans that are going to affect them. It makes sense to assume that individuals have better access to what their own flourishing entails than any outsider. Letting individuals tell us what their good is through their revealed preferences allows economists to dodge the hard utilitarian problem of higher versus lower order pleasures and stuff like that. We don't have to decide what the good life entails. The consumer gets to decide what the good life entails. Sen argues that self-interest maximization, while certainly compatible with rationality, is not required by it. Sen then moves from positive economics to normative economics. Sen argues welfare economics is grounded in a version of utilitarianism. Sen divides classic utilitarianism into three parts. Welfareism, which is the idea that a state's goodness is completely described by its utility information. Some ranking, which is the idea that the best state is the one that has the highest total utility. And consequentialism, the idea that a choice should be judged based on its foreseeable consequences. Now, Sen's got no problem with consequentialism. He actually likes that. He thinks any moral theory must employ at least some consequential reasoning. For example, even if rights are intrinsically valuable, we still need to be consequentialists to deal with situations where different rights come into conflict. As for some ranking, in PEL's utilitarianism episode, one of the large problems that arose was interpersonal comparisons of utility. Utilitarianism sounds great until you're actually forced with the practical problems of weighing the relative merits of saving one man's life versus inconveniencing 10,000 people. Utility monsters all are also hard to deal with, and an arrow's impossibility theorem tells us that there is no voting system that can sensibly decide between a set of Pareto-efficient options. Now, engineering economics dodges these hard problems by dropping the sum-ranking criteria. Economists only feel on solid ground normatively when advocating for Pareto efficiency. But Sen thinks that the Pareto criteria is too conservative. Extremely unequal societies can still be Pareto efficient, so long as the richest guy has some value at his hoard from the margin. Sen also critiques welfareism. The move economists want to make is to say that people act to maximize their self-interest, and that by designing policies to get people more of their revealed preferences, we make them better off. Due to his analysis of rationality, Sen thinks extrapolating from interest to actions is problematic. His analysis also suggests that there are at least two separate things that we should care about, getting people more of what they want and getting people more of what's actually good for them. If these two things don't line up perfectly, as Sen thinks is perfectly possible, then a one-dimensional measure of the good is inadequate. 
Sen is also attracted to the idea of other intrinsic values as well. So Sen totally rejects moral monism. A ranking of social outcomes which squeezes heterogeneous considerations into a unidimensional scale might be desirable, but it's not necessitated by anything. In the years since Sen's lecture, much progress has been made in economics led by behavioral economists and decision theorists in understanding a wider range of behavior that's not clearly rational. Many economists today shy away from using the loaded term rational for any set of behavioral assumptions. However, versions of utilitarianism remain the dominant paradigm for understanding welfare. I hope you found this a useful introduction and go on to enjoy the readings, which are pretty approachable. Thank you so much for listening. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.